Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast that is coming to Texas tomorrow. Oh my God, I hope you guys meet us there. And if you don't, I will write your name in a ledger and you will be banned from my wedding. (laughs) That's true. You heard it here first, folks. All people coming to Texas shows do get an automatic invite and plus one to my wedding, which is more than I can say for my nearest and dearest. Okay, this legal stamp disclaimer, this is not copyrighted. What does it mean when it's like set in stone? That they're not allowed to invite people to their wedding either. (laughs) You get it. Anyway, we are coming to Texas tomorrow, Dallas and Austin. We are going to be in Seattle and Portland next week. And the week after that, we will be in London and Dublin. So if you want tickets, you are coming up upon your very last chance, my friends. And I'm so excited to meet you all there. We will do a meet and greet. We'll probably even try to do a little hangout beforehand. So let us know if you're interested in that. And we will see you guys soon. And I love you. Yes, I'm so excited. And also, I interrupted my own introduction. This is, in fact, Celebrity Memoir Book Club, the podcast where we gather a bunch of ingredients from a swamp, right? And then we mix it up into a beautiful potion that people are so happy to experience. I really think you have completely forgotten why we do these up top. I did. Okay. This up top for your memory and for a little peek behind the curtain for the listeners is so that people don't leave us one star reviews and say they talk about themselves or they offer their own opinions or they think they're funny. We do think we're funny. I think comedians. So funny. I think Claire's even funnier. I think Ashley's even. Nobody makes me laugh. We're mentally ill. (laughs) And I get it. If you don't think we're funny, most people don't. But I would recommend I would say most people I would say some people statistically in the world I would say less people have called us funny (laughs) than have said nothing at all that's not fair to count the people who abstain from the vote (laughs) (laughs) anyway so if you don't like us if you don't like our voices or the fact that we have opinions or the fact that we make jokes I agree with you and I would recommend you read the book yourself or forget we existed at all or find another podcast that's doing the exact same thing as us They exist. (laughs) If you like us, if you're having a fun time here, we appreciate you. We welcome you aboard this Gator ship. And we read the five-star reviews at the end. Yes. So if you want to leave one, Ashley will say something cute about your name. That's true. And Claire. Yes. If you were to, say, write your own memoir, what would you title a chapter about last week? I'm time stamping this episode by accident. So don't get in a tizzy when you find out that we did this two weeks in advance. We're recording a little in advance to prepare for going on tour. But I have to say the kids are getting into my brain and they're muddling it. Uh Uh-oh. And by that, I mean, I have always believed in the phrase, be the change you want to see in the world. And (laughs) I think I might have said it first, even. (laughs) I had never heard it until just now. So yeah, copyright. And one of those changes is I want to remind people that there is an option to not get filler or Botox or plastic surgery. I don't care what you do with your face. Of course, you have the choice. Ashley has chosen to inject a little bit of poison right betwixt her eyeballs where it belongs. (laughs) And I don't hate her for it at all. I love her just as much as I did without the poison. Maybe even a little bit more. I do think you get online and every person online would have you think that the only thing you can do as you get over the age of 22 is get some work done. And I used to be like, you know what? Would I look better with work done? Of course. We all do. And up to a point. But I don't want to go down that slippery slope because I do think like a pinch and a tweak, it it becomes a whole nip tuck situation. But also I'm like, you know what? I do have a minuscule platform, but a platform at that. And I just, maybe I need to be the person that puts her foot down and says, no, I'm going to show my face in public and it'll be a craggly old (laughs) 
ugly, like wrinkled ass face that's not perfectly proportionate or symmetrical. But then, oh my God, everyone's getting work done and I am Everyone feeling beaten is by it, man. Done. I want to stand up for what's right, but I also am like, I don't know, man, if I'm in the MLB and everybody's on steroids, at some point you're hurting yourself by not participating. And I just want to say, I feel like I've put up a good fight and I've felt pretty confident in my decisions and I am weak. Can I tell you what is really hurting it for me? Mm-hmm. Because I've really wavered back and forth. I've always wanted a nose job, but then I sit down and I say, Ashley, you have a nice, unique beak on your head. <laughs> and the thing is, they're making it look easy. Like an afternoon yes. excursion. You just pop by the office. They just give you a new nose or new bazungas or a fresh chin and you just carry on with your life. It's surgery. It's real surgery. But And that was one of the things that always held me off is I have a deep fear of needles. I don't like to be in pain. I hate discomfort. I'm not a good patient. I'm a real bitch. But now I am feeling like it is hard to say no and it's hard to believe in myself. And I just want to say, if you're out there feeling the pressures, me too, we might have to start a club where either we stand strong in our ugliness and our God-given ugliness, or we all say, listen, we don't like it, but we got to play ball. <laughs> I don't know. I'm literally, it could go 50-50. It's needling its way into my noggin. And I have the added pressure of the wedding in the fall, which makes me go, well, maybe just, you know, for the photos. But once I start it, it never ends. You never go, oh, I hate the pits under my eyes today. But in four years, they won't bother me anymore. No, in four years, they'll be worse, especially if I see them get better. The upkeep happens forever. I will say every time I see a wrinkle in my forehead, I say, ooh, better put an appointment on the cow. So that's where I'm at. That's really where my gears are grinding. Ashley, if you were a celebrity and last week was the memoir, what would you call the chapter? I would call it, Ashley, do something. I'm also dating this one. I have a really hard time doing projects on my own. I'm a partnership gal. That's why I found Claire. I like doing things with someone. And a couple of years ago, I came up with a little idea for a side podcast that I was excited about where I talk about music because it's just a thing that doesn't really fit on this podcast. I banned music. I actually am from the town of Footloose and I (laughs) hate music. I know. And so I started it and I got really excited about it and I have all the pieces in place and I just need to post it. But I get really nervous about doing something that is like on my own because you can't like weather the criticism under a shared umbrella. You know what I mean? Just no matter what, I have to deal with it by myself and I'm excited about it. But I feel like I wanted to date it and talk about it on this podcast because the episodes are recorded and I just need to release them. So this week, they will be out by this time. I'm putting this on this episode so that I have to have started releasing episodes of my other podcast, my little side gem called Gushers by today. So if you're hearing this, go listen to it. If you have criticism, it's not the same as CNBC where we're open to constructive criticism. Don't hurt my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I am excited about it. It's just me talking about music with friends of mine. And I think it'll be really fun to do. And the logo is really cool. Adrian made it. So it'll be out now. Yeah, go listen after this episode. After this. Listen to CNBC first and always. But like then if you're like, oh, I wish there was more on the Patreon. It's not out yet. It's like a filler. That's all I ever wanted it to be. (laughs) Ashley's putting out filler and I'm getting filler. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, maybe we'll both undergo major surgery. Next week when you tune into the episodes, which are on YouTube, every Thursday at noon we post on YouTube. And sometimes a little bit later than that if YouTube takes forever to buffer. Maybe one week you'll tune in and we'll just have new heads. Can't wait. And speaking of talking about music, this week we are talking about someone who has had a lot of jobs, including talking about music. She is definitely somebody who you would call music adjacent. (laughs) I think you could name any entertainment industry career and then say adjacent and it would describe her career. She's like alt slash adjacent. 
Yeah. So this week we are talking about Rachel Finley, aka Steak Tooth, aka Insta Steak. She was kind of like an OG Tumblr girl, a person of the internet for many years. I first discovered her just like a long time ago, randomly, I think on Instagram, just being like, who is this girl and why does she know every cool person that exists? Like, I think she was originally kind of an influencer's influencer, which is someone we say that they don't have a ton of followers, but every person who follows them has like 5 million followers. And now I think she's also an influencer in a way. She has a clothing company and she put out a book. I don't know who published it. I think she did. Good for her. She also at one point was married to and has a kid with Blake Anderson of Workaholics. And although I hate to tie a woman to a man, I do feel that she for a while was known in the press and on TMZ as the wife of Blake Anderson. And I will get into this later, but I think that her being tied to him to like up her star power upped his star power a lot. Too. I think he was just one of the guys from Workaholics, but having a cool Tumblr girlfriend, I think, did a lot for him. Like, I don't think people would have cared what he wore except for when it was in combination with them. Nobody would have looked up photos of him on the red carpet except for her. I like randomly knew who she was and I went on a deep dive to be like, who is she though? And I never really figured it out. And then every (laughs) couple of years, she would kind of pop back up in like my recollection or in the media. And I'd be like, oh, my God, who is she, though? And then I would go on another deep dive and then not really get any answers. This book finally exists to answer my prayers. I think this is our first self-published. I don't think I'm alone in randomly sitting at my computer at work and thinking, who is that girl? Maybe I'll just spend the next six billable hours finding out. I had never heard of her, but I also was not on Tumblr. That wasn't my scene. I'm not like an alt girl. That being said, she does have a very interesting story to tell. This is like a wild tale. It's very Jeanette McCurdy. It's actually told in the exact same style of Jeanette McCurdy's book, which is like short, quick little memories that bring you through the years. When I started reading it, I went, oh, this is somebody who learned to write on Zenga. This is like by teens, for teens, starring teens. That's how I would describe it. And it's weird because Ashley was like, I liked it because it reminded me of teen novels. And it feels like the other side of that teen novel coin when you read the book about like the girl who had no parents. So she was just sleeping at the skate park with her like skater friends. And you were like, oh, I wish I was that girl so bad. And now to read like, no, here's what it's actually like to have nobody looking out for you. That girl who at 16 was sleeping at the band's house, living on their couch. She is who you wanted to be as a kid that now as an adult, you're like, thank God somebody looked after me and loved me. It reminded me a lot, all those YA novels that I thought were so cool, like Gingerbread Ginger, by Rachel Cohen. It made me think of Gingerbread so bad to be like, oh my God, this cool girl. With no parents, who's dealing with drugs. (laughs) Yeah, like it just is cool. And she just has a cool boyfriend and she like finds her salvation in this boy who takes her in and loves her. That language that she uses where she's like, I felt shrouded in his sweaty pit. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh my God, so romantic. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting story. So I'm excited to get in. So if you don't know Steak Tooth, you will now. And I promise to God, you will spend the next six hours stalking her online. (laughs) I fucking swear to the heavens that it is the God's honest truth. So it starts off with this introduction by her friend, Tia, who I think helped her write and edit it. And it does make me nervous now that I realize that this was her writer and editor, because I remember reading this introduction and being like, oh, these people have never had a creative critique before. This is such clunky writing that to me is like you read somebody's Tumblr post and thought, well, this is the height of writing. I'm going to write in the style of that, even though I didn't even master it. Okay, I have to say, you grew up reading real books. Mm -hmm. Some would call it literature. I don't know. I would call everything literature. This book was so readable to me because this is what I'm like used to reading. I grew up reading YA novels. I loved a gingerbread. I loved Speak. I 
I don't think this is as good as that. I don't think it's as good as it, but it like feels exactly like it. Okay. Can I say to me, it doesn't feel exactly like that. It feels exactly imitating that. Yeah. So this book is called Nobody Ever Told Me Anything by Rachel Finley. And the intro says, the thing with Rachel, with Nobody Ever Told Me Anything and with all of us is that no matter how self-possessed, satisfied or successful we may seem, there's a version of ourselves that we'd like to forget a skin we've shed. There are those who spend their entire lives trying to destroy this link to the reptilian world and those who embrace it. People who, like the gecko, swallow their shed whole, not as means of hiding their former self, but in order to nourish their present. And I remember reading that and being like, okay, could you tell me what you mean by that? <laughs> I feel like it's how you write in high school when you get really involved in this metaphor and then like the metaphor kind of takes on a life of its own and you're like chasing it. And you're just like saying things. You know I love a gangly metaphor. The thing that's beautiful about metaphors is that they write their own new story. I do feel like this book for me got better as it went because it was trying to be writerly at the beginning and then it kind of gets clearer as you go. And then also I do think she was huge on Tumblr and she would write little posts. That's the thing is I wonder how many of these are just posts from her Tumblr. I never really read it. And I think a post can work when it's a paragraph, but when you're reading like 300 pages of Tumblr style, you're like, actually, somebody needs to come in here. Also, I will say to me, this book starts withery tightens up and then the last 40 pages kind of feel rushed and kind of fall apart to me yeah all the chapters are little vignettes of life and the first one is june 1996 and it just opens with the scene of her mom saying rachel get up rachel get up now it's dark outside rachel doesn't understand what's going on and her mom just says here's a list of numbers you can call if there's an emergency but do not call them unless you're about to die and whatever you do stay inside those are the instructions. And she's like, okay, I can do that. Her mom is constantly just leaving her there for a few days at a time. So she's like, totally, I'll stay inside. And she really paints a picture of being someone who lives a chaotic life, but can follow directions and enjoys a directive. So she's like, stay inside. Instructions. I love instructions. Her mom leaves and she says, Rachel, you know, I'm sick. And Rachel says, I nod. Of course, she's sick. This is old news to me. We've been discussing her sickness my entire life. It's why she lays on the couch with her headaches and why she sometimes throws up and needs to be alone in her room. So we back up then and she explains about the villa, the place that they're currently living in that her mom leaves from and that this is her grandparents, her mom's parents vacation home. It seems like it's kind of a retirement-esque community in Naples. And they have now gotten here because a few years earlier, her dad had an affair, cheated on her mom. And when her mom found out, she kicked him out of the house. And upon being kicked out of the house, he drains their joint bank account. So they had previously lived in like a working class home that they owned. But once he stole all their money, her mom, who was a teacher, was foreclosed upon and wasn't able to make enough and started going into really bad debt. So they have to move out of the house into an apartment. And then once the bills start piling up at the apartment, they sneak into the vacation home. Yes. And so they're living in this vacation home. They sneak in and out of the back door through the alley. They keep the windows drawn. So here's the thing that she never really addresses because I think she was too young to ever look into it. But like no bills are really being paid ever. Rachel starts paying some of their bills on one of her mom's credit cards, which never gets paid off. So eventually the credit cards stop working. But her mom was a working teacher up until this point when she's 10 or 11 years old. And it seems like she spends all of her money in like random manias when she'll just buy a bunch of stuff online. They never have money to pay rent of any kind, to pay bills of any kind. It's just her and her mom. She's like 10 years old. And she says, it's you and me. And that was exactly it. It made me feel big, like two best friends as a part of a team. No time to be sad, drag my feet whining. I knew what losing her savings meant for both of us. Whenever she took a sick day, mom would tell me exactly what that time at home had cost her. So her mom is like working full time as a teacher. She works at night doing something else. She has like a nighttime job. And so she is working constantly and they are just struggling. And a lot of responsibility is put on Rachel from the time she's young. And Ashley said, if the TV turns off, if the lights go out, Rachel has to find change to go to the pay phone and like use the credit card to pay the bills off. And of course, yeah. 
you can only do that for so long on a credit card. So then she paints a picture of who her parents were. Her mom was this effervescent woman who also had a severe drinking problem. Her grandparents were bad people. So she talks about how her mom was kind of the black sheep of the family. And it just was very clear from day one that their grandparents did not accept them, did not even like them for the most part. Grandma made mom doubt herself, her judgment seeping through the receiver like noxious fumes. She might have said she'd been glad that we moved away from my dad, but she wouldn't have liked the apartment either. So they are living in this villa. They're squatting. And because it's an active community, they can't let anybody know they're there. So they parked on the block. They're not allowed to leave the house during the day. They keep all the lights off. They're only allowed to turn on the lights in the bathroom. And they have to sneak out through a back alleyway and nobody can see them. So they like basically live in the dark and quiet of this home illegally. They've broken in. I don't think Rachel fully understands that that's what they were doing. But obviously, as a kid, you know something's up if you're not allowed to turn on the TV and not allowed to walk out the front door. And her mom also had a severe mental illness that she does not know about or understand at this time. But her mom would have these spirals of rage or fear or something. She would wake up in the middle of the night and start screaming about getting the mice off her. And Rachel would have to assure her, there are no mice on you. You're doing okay. Or she would just mimic taking mice off of her and then be like, okay, I got rid of the mice. You can go back to sleep. Yeah. Whenever she left the house, she thought somebody was following her. And then she was always like very rageful and angry at Rachel. Whenever something goes wrong, she'd scream, how could you do this? How? She shoved a pile of mail off the counter, slamming her fist down on the cheap laminate countertop. I couldn't tell if she was yelling at me or herself, but I watched her move around the room, cooking things, yelling, flipping the light switches on and off, shaking. I liked helping her. I stayed there feeling her breath on my skin until morning. This was our cycle. Little ups, big downs. I wanted to be as big for her as I could, but I couldn't see the ways in which she was hurting and neither of us could see the ways that she was hurting me. So a lot of pressure and responsibility is put on Rachel and she's also like the constant receiver of all the abuse. And it just seems like there's no one in their lives. The grandparents call every once in a while to check on and Rachel's been trained to lie to them about how they're doing and say everything's great. We're all doing great. Mom's at work. It seems like there's nobody else that's looking out for either of them. So they get to the villa and this is an upgrade to Rachel at first. When they move in, she has her own room. There's beds for her. Previously, she'd been sleeping on the floor. So this was like a huge luxury experience. And then slowly it kind of devolves as she realizes what they are and aren't allowed to do and realizing that this is like not a kosher situation. So it's really bad at home. But at this point, her mom was still holding down a full-time job as an English teacher for eighth graders at the school where Rachel goes. She's like, it was weird to me because she was everybody's favorite teacher at school. Everybody loved her and Rachel was a real outcast. She didn't have any friends. Part of that, I think, was because she had to come straight home and she was embarrassed to have anybody over. Well, she like couldn't have anyone over because like they couldn't be spotted. Yeah. And they really just didn't have much. And she was very much considered an outcast. And one of her mom's big problems is she was an alcoholic. So she was constantly drinking at home and she had the big seven up cup that she always filled with vodka. And Rachel's like, I don't know if she's drinking it at school, but at some point, things started falling apart for the mother and she had to take a leave of absence. She kind of has a mental breakdown, it seems. Yeah, so she's just kind of at home lying in the darkness for it seems like a very long time. People are constantly asking Rachel at school, like, where's your mom? What's up with that? And it is very interesting that it seems that Rachel was very obviously uncared for. And they all knew her mom. And this was before things truly devolved. But it seems like nobody was coming to the house and making calls. Yeah. Her mom was really good about training her daughter and herself to not answer the phone and not tell anybody what was really going on. But it doesn't seem like anybody tried too hard to find out. 
And so while her mother is home trying to get better and sick, she, you know, is having these like manic spirals and she's leaving for days at a time that she's coming home. And Rachel will often just come back from school and find her mom passed out naked on the floor, having slept for days, her skin gray, and she doesn't know what to do. Even when she was working as a teacher, she says that her mom would never wake her up for school. Her mom would just leave her. They were going to the same place. And so a lot of days she just missed school. It's really wild. What you get a sense of is that there's like no support systems for kids. Anyway, so this is that year. This is, I think, her sixth grade year. Yeah. So that June, as we finally get back up to June 1996, her mom says, don't answer the phone and then just never comes back. She stays in that house for as long as she can. She will wake up in the middle of the night and go to the gas station to buy food. She has very little money, obviously. She's getting like one bag of bagel bites at a time, feeding herself and just sitting in the quiet dark of that house alone waiting for her mom. So she spends the entire summer just inside, making these quick runs to the gas station in the night. She has a little routine of her own, but she's 11 years old, completely left alone. And then September comes and she's like, I promised I would stay inside, but if I don't go to school, people will come looking for me because you have to be in school. So she decides that she's just going to leave to go to school because it'll protect them further. And she likes it there because if she gets there early enough, she can get a free breakfast and then she can get a free lunch. And so that's sort of how she subsists. She subsists by going to school. And of course, she does not have a lot of friends. She's an 11-year-old taking care of herself. I don't know how it works. She also mentions that at one point she finds a computer in the garage that they had given her as part of being a teacher. So she like creates a screen name and discovers the internet. And that is kind of all she does the entire summer that she's alone is just sit there and be on the internet. Her mom will call like every two weeks and check in and say, oh, I'm coming home soon. But she'll never tell her where she is. She doesn't explain where she's gone. She never says how soon soon is. And she never gives a phone number for Rachel to call her back. So Rachel is really just sitting at home, taking herself to school, coming home and waiting for her mom to check in. And then she just has the chapter, December 25th, 1996. I watch holiday movies on Lifetime and make rice aroni. Mom doesn't call. So that means her mom left in June. This is someone who turned 11 in September. And she has now been by herself for six full months. So eventually the electricity and the water go out. And so this was what I was thinking. Because they were living in the grandparents' vacation home, I have a feeling that utilities like water and electricity were probably constantly being paid by the grandparents, not the mom anyway. Because like, why would they randomly turn the water off? So I have a feeling they must have thought the mother and daughter were living there and turned it off on them. Little did they know if they had thought to fucking call or even drive by and check, they would see that an 11-year-old girl has been living by herself. So, of course, they turn off the water. They turn off the electricity. And now she's in there just like starving to death, unable to shower or use the bathroom. And she's digging holes in the garden so that she can like poop outside and stuff. Yeah. She's like going to the golf course and stealing little flags and stuff from golf courses and construction sites so that she can mark where she's been so she doesn't re-dig into her own waste. It really is a horrifying picture that she paints. She starts getting off the school bus like a stop before her school so that she can go to the grocery store and she like showers in the bathroom there and uses their hand soap for everything, including toothpaste. And again, nobody is picking up on it. And she has no friends. She has no friends. Everyone at school is mean to her because she'll wear the same thing every day. I mean, she'll rinse her stuff off with dryer sheets, not rinse, but kind of rub dryer sheets all over herself to try and smell better so that it doesn't smell like she hasn't done laundry. She has no means to do laundry. She can't afford the detergent. I have no idea where the money is coming from. She like keeps searching through the houses and finding a couple dollars here and a couple dollars there. I think she was stealing a lot. I think she was mostly living off of the two meals that she got at school. May 1997. She's still in the house by herself. She thinks about the things she wishes she could tell her mom if she could call her. I'm sorry about the scratches on grandma's nice dining room chairs. I don't think she'll notice where the stucco notched in the wood under my weight when I was trying to get the frog. I filled the scratches in nicely with Sharpie, but we only had black and orange, so I mixed them together. 
So finally, at some point, people are watching them. But it's not like people who care. It's bill collectors. It's bill collectors. And eventually they call CPS because they see her constantly sneaking out of her own house. And every time they say, like, when can we talk to your mom? She says, oh, she'll be home later. The mom is never home. Eventually they call CPS and they show up at her door. She's just too exhausted to not answer the door, even though she knows she's been under strict instructions not to. At this point, it's been almost a full year. It's May. They knock in the middle of the night and she answers... I step back because I don't want to answer for this and they know it. The heat from inside the house hits them like a concrete wall. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's Florida year round and there's no AC. She's just in this super hot home. She sleeps in the bathtub because it's the only place that feels a bit cool. As one of them looks over my shoulders, I can feel his eye landing on the piles of split rotting oranges on the carpet. He continues to scan for signs of life, but there are none. I wince as he steps forward, but he only lifts his hand to the light switch. When no bulb flickers on, the other man points his flashlight into the house and I see the gold badge on his hip and I know it's all over. Mom, I'm sorry. So she's taken to the police station where a woman named Ms. Kilroy comes to pick her up. This is her mom's friend. And apparently they had called her grandparents and said, okay, she has no guardian. Will you take her? And her grandparents said no. These are evil people. Her mom was like severely mentally ill, big time alcoholic, did a lot of things wrong, but like was out of her mind. Her grandparents made an active choice to let her like just die. And these are people who had their home. They had their beach home and they had another lake house up in New York state. So they had means like there was no reason. How could you turn your back on an 11 year old who's been living by herself for a year? Yeah. I mean, it's really horrific. So she moves in with Miss Kilroy, who's a divorced woman with two children a few years older than Rachel. And she just like learns to take up no space. She just sits there quietly and is very grateful and doesn't want to upset anybody. And so she spends a few months just kind of sitting in her room quietly, like looking up at the ceiling. The older girl, Arielle, who was about six years older than her, starts just dropping her off at the mall with her every day. She was like, yeah, this is what I do. I'm going to go to the mall I'm going to hang out with my friends. So you figure something else out and I'll pick you up at four. So every single day she just starts bopping around the mall. She discovers like the samples system. Yeah, that you can go and get as many samples as you want because minimum wage people don't really care how many samples you take. Yeah. And then the guy at the Chinese food stall, as long as she's nice to him, he'll just give her a scoop of orange chicken. So she just kind of starts coming by her meals by bopping around the food court every day. And then she starts making a couple friends. There's this guy from the cookie counter named Josh, who is super tall. He's 16 years old, six foot four. And just like, cool. He's always boinking another chick in the freezer. I don't know how much you guys know about working at places with industrial freezers. They're for sex. I mean, I've made out in a freezer, but like people bang in freezers if that affects your eating out at all. It sounds so cold. It's like not that bad. So he finally is like, all right, why are you always sitting alone in the food court? And she had gotten good at figuring out what answers people wanted to hear. And she's like, nobody really wants to feel so sad for you that they're nervous. But you have to give them like a story. And she's like, the best story to tell them is, oh, my mom drops me off here until she gets off of work. But today she's picking me up early so we can go to a movie. And she's like, they want to hear that today is a good day. They'll help you out. But there's a reason. But it's not so dire that they have to step in. And she really talks about using these experiences to kind of figure out how to hone a personality, like learn what people want from you and give it to them exactly. And she's constantly like testing out and perfecting responses to give people what they want to hear. Yeah. So Josh kind of takes her under his wing. And he finally asks her and is like, all right, no, what's the real reason? And for the first time, she's like, OK, here's why I'm here. <laughs> And he's like, what the fuck? And so he brings her around with him. They become little buddies. He takes her to the most important place in the world to teenage me. The skate park. And he introduces her to all his guy friends. And for the first time, she has a crew. Yeah, she really enjoys kind of being part of a crew where she doesn't have to really participate in conversation. She can just like be in the conversation and she feels protected. She feels like she's in something and she has somewhere to go. 
And she goes, I was vouched for. And I liked being vouched for more than I had ever liked walking around the mall alone. And so now she has these group of guys that become almost like brothers to her. And she even says, she's like, I was never a part of the action, but I was invited. I was next to the action. And that was good enough. There's this guy named Bunchy. Bunchy has an older brother named Derek and a single dad. So that's where they hang out every day. And finally, she has friends. Bunchy has a bunk bed. So she sleeps on the top bunk. And people start referring that as Rachel's bed. And she's like, I can't believe for the first time in my life, I have like a place to be. It's Butchy. Oh, I was like Bunchy. I don't want to correct you if I'm like dead wrong because I'm the illiterate one. But I like to think of him as bunched up. <laughs> Butchy. Yeah, Butchy. It was like Butchy, Richie, Mitchy, and Titchy. Yeah, they had goofy <laughs> names. But anyway, so she starts hanging out at this house, which is just like the single dad and his two sons and all the skater guys. She's wearing all their clothes, like literally men, six foot four men's hand-me-downs. And it becomes kind of her signature style is just wearing a huge t-shirt and then like rolled up boxer shorts and she would sew up the pee holes. She sees them as her brothers and they really take her in and they care about her. Nobody tries to hook up with her. It's understood that she's like a little kid. It seems like she developed late. So she kind of has a prepubescent body and she's three or four years younger than all of them. So she becomes their little sidekick mascot. And everything she learns, she learns through just kind of listening to their conversations. She says, usually I was the only girl in the friend group and the only one around the guys at the skate park. And truthfully, I liked it that way. I used my time in the audience to formulate an invisible checklist of what not to do. Sure, focusing on what type of girl I didn't want to be wasn't the best foundation for future female friendships, but I would remedy that line of thought later in life. Every night that I slept at Bunch, I have to call him Bunchy. It rolls off the tongue. It does not. That sounds crazy. Does Butchy, that's like a word to you? That's what you would name your son? I wouldn't name anyone anything. <laughs> I don't believe in names. You're just a soul. Every night that I slept at Butchie's room on the top bunk, I listened to everyone breathing around me, piled up on the floor. I am not alone. I would think to myself, hopeful that wherever my mom was, she was feeling this too. It wasn't long before I left Miss Kilroy's entirely and moved into the Perry house with Butchie, his brother Derek, and his dad, Richie. <laughs> it wasn't a formal arrangement, but it was kind of accepted. She would call in and check in, and whenever CPS called Miss Kilroy, she would come back home and be like, yeah, I'm feeling fine. But she was mostly staying out of trouble. She wasn't doing anything that bad. It was about two years ago that I made the decision to become a nails girl. It started as a way to do a little bit of self-care, take some time for myself, but the way that having my nails freshly done makes me feel is unbeatable. It takes every outfit and it just makes it look polished. And the Olive and June Manny system has made it easier than ever for me to just get my nails freshly done by myself at home. You just pop on a comfort show and before you know it, perfection. Olive and June Manny system has everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. You can customize it with your choice of six polishes. The polish doesn't chip and it lasts seven days or more. And when you break it down, it's about $2 a manicure. I've been doing my nails at home, like I said, for a while now. And the Olive and June Manny system has completely changed the experience. It has little elements to it that make me feel like I am truly giving myself a spa treatment at home, in my kitchen. The little brushes, the pieces that make the brushes easier to control when you're painting with your non-dominant hand. I will tell you what, my nails look beautiful. The colors are bright. They're exciting. If you like a more neutral shade, they have so many options waiting for you. I personally am a blue and green girl. I love a pop of color on my nails. And lately, the comments that I have been getting on my nails everywhere I go, I picked my dog up at daycare and the woman was like, oh my God, your nails look incredible. And I was like, I know they're not even chipped, even though I have to sometimes stick my hands in my dog's mouth to fish out something that she picked up off the street. It is truly a life-changing experience. Visit oliveandjune.com slash swarm for 20% off your first Manny system. That's olive, O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E 
com slash W-O-R-M for 20% off your first Manny system. And then her mom comes back. My unofficial stay at the Perry house came to an end when mom got out of rehab at the end of September. I was a few months past 13 and already a student at Naples High. So when she was 11, her mom was gone for the year that she was 11. And then it seems like, I guess right before she turned 12, she moved in with Miss Kilroy for a few months. And then for the rest of that year. So her mom was gone for like a full two years, like a little over two years. So they get back to the villa and it's clear someone has cleaned up. Everything is turned back on. And she's like, I honestly don't know what to do. This mom, sober mom, was new to me. And in some ways, the chaos of the old mom felt safer. For a moment, I wish she was here instead. I didn't want to have the responsibility of keeping her calm, of not saying or doing anything to tip the scales to send her away again. I questioned whether to even address all the time we'd spent apart to ask her where she went. She looked exhausted, like she'd been chewed up and spat out and chewed up again, forced it back into her old life, forced back to me. She swayed a little and grabbed the counter for balance, trying to look casual. I took a deep breath. Want to watch TV, I asked. So at first, things are okay. People from Child Protective Services are always coming and like checking in. Close to when she left the villa, she had mentioned to me saying she wished she had more control over her thoughts. So this is when she's realizing her mom's problem is not just alcoholism, but like she's not realizing it. Like looking back now, she's able to put these pieces together and say, okay. And I don't think her mom realizes it either. Like she's like, it's clear that they treated her for alcohol, but there's still a problem here. Her mom would scream at her. You think I don't know how stupid you think I am? Shut your fucking mouth. She hissed her voice barely above a whisper and get the fuck out of my house. So pretty quickly, her mom does start drinking again and is in worse and worse shape all the time. She starts to kind of think that she's keeping her mom alive. And again, at this point, she's 13 years old. A panic attack saddled in my chest every time I was away from her. The only way to soothe it was to get home, to see her sleeping, crawl into bed next to her and hope that the alarm I set wouldn't pitch her into a rage the next morning. And then we meet the first real love of her little teenage life, Michael. Michael is also six foot four, hugely important to me (laughs) and an agoraphobe it's hard to believe that when you're that tall you could be scared of anything but it happens so she doesn't know why she's never met this guy michael that's apparently a part of the crew and they're like he never leaves this house so they go to meet him one day and she's immediately in love he's skinny he has a cell phone he has expensive jeans with a shoelace belt he's everything that a little skate punk would want he's a six foot four skater boy who's afraid of the outside it's very sexy In the meantime, obviously her mom's home. She's drinking a lot. And finally, as was inevitable, she gets a pretty bad DUI and it gets in the headlines and it's like local teacher gets DUI, child in car. And because of that, she loses her job. So now she's officially unemployed. She's obviously still struggling, but she does get a severance. And with that severance, she's able to sneak her way into a retirement community. Yeah. So there's this mobile home that you have to be 65 and up to live in. And so she kind of finagles her way into that mobile home. They're able to get a pretty nice, it seems, pre-manufactured, prefab house. Yeah. So they actually have nice place that they own that's theirs that's livable for the first time since the big house, quote unquote. And here she gives us this little insight where someone rings the phone, she picks up and it's her dad. I can't believe her dad knew where they were and had contact and let her live alone as a squatter for a year. So where are you living? He asks over by the lakes. I said casually the lakes, the lakes by the airport. Already I could hear the disgust in his voice unwarranted for a man that spent most of his time in the pay by the hour motel. Yeah, the place is nice. Is it now? He asked skeptically. One of those old trailer parks back there. It's a development, I said, shooting mama look. We live in a manufactured home. You two should have never left that old house he cut in. All right, dad, nice talking to you. Love you, I said, slamming the phone shut. I mean, of course, this is the man who robbed them blind and had them evicted, so. Yeah, I guess they shouldn't have ever left that home if they had any money. I mean, her mom up until this point had a job. I know teachers don't get paid that much, but like you can rent an apartment in Florida on a teacher's salary. 
I don't know. I'm like, where was it? Where was the money? Well, I think when she was drinking a lot, it seems like she would go on benders for days and she seemed manic. Also, I think at this point her credit was so shot that I wonder if anybody would rent her an apartment. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think they were literally hiding from creditors constantly. So then she tells the story about getting home and a woman next door comes over and is like, tell your grandma, because they had lied and said that her mother was her grandmother so that they could get into the retirement community to stop putting her bottles in my recycling. And Rachel's like, oh, we just had a dinner party. So that's why she had extra bottles. She must have used your garbage because she ran out of space in hers. And when she comes in, her mom freaks out and screams. Her mom is constantly in a panic and rage that Rachel is going to tell on her to one of the neighbors about what her real age is. So her mom just jumps to the assumption that talking to a neighbor means Rachel was telling the neighbor about who they really were. You told her about my age, didn't you? Hate it so much here that you want me on the street. Oh, you'll be fine living with your friends. But me, you don't care about me. Not one bit. She then grabs Rachel by the wrist and actually turns it so hard that she breaks Rachel's wrist. They hear a pop and her mom immediately kind of like breaks out of it and just drives her to CVS, gets her the cheapest splint and puts it on and they don't speak. And so the minute her mom starts drinking and passes out, Rachel calls Richie, the father of her friends, who comes and gets her and has to have like a proper cast put on her. Yeah, her wrist is full on broken. So she's back to living with Richie, Butchie, and Derek, and just kind of lurking around the mall. And when she's just hanging out at a Chick-fil-A, they're like, do you want to work here? And she was like, yeah. Because she was told that the only place Michael will leave his house for is to go to Chick-fil-A. So she kind of starts working there, hoping to run into him. And she does. He starts coming every day, buying Chick-fil-A from her. And finally, he's like, what are you doing after work? So they hang out one day. And it was just kind of a one-time hang out. She's head over heels in love with him, but I mean, he doesn't leave his house. And at one point she has sex with Derek. It's kind of unclear about the timing or the thought process here. She hangs out with boys all the time. She hears them talking about how bad it is to be a virgin. And she's like, oh, I guess Derek is like kind of a low stakes person to lose it to. So she just goes to his room one night and sleeps with him. And then he says, you're my girlfriend now. And she's like, oh, this sucks. I didn't want to be your girlfriend. What I wasn't prepared for was Derek calling me his girlfriend or the fallout with Butchie that followed. Unlike my brothers, who were slapped on the back and poured an extra beer and seated at the center of the circle on the living room floor, hyped into revealing the details, I was a girl who had sex. And according to Butchie, that was shameful. Derek couldn't hurt me because I was not emotionally invested. I didn't go into it thinking I'd get the spotlight. Trust me, I was more than happy to keep it a secret, but I also hadn't expected my friends to distance themselves from me either. Why could they have sex and access all the cool that came with it? And when I did it, I was slinking into Derek's room. She realizes that she just didn't understand the value of sex. I wish there had been someone in my life to tell me not to play along, that I didn't have to be Derek's girlfriend, but I didn't have a home to return to besides Butchie's, and I didn't have friends in my corner to back me up. So I accepted the drugstore flowers. She talks a little bit about like wishing someone had told her what milestones in life mean. All she had to go off of was like what this group of boys said when they were with a group of boys thinking she was also one of the boys. So she like didn't have any sort of direction to turn to. Then she finally gets a girlfriend, like a, a girl best friend. Yeah, she meets through another random girl who one day is like, why don't you come to the mall with us? And um, initially Lizette does not like her. But very quickly, she realizes that Rachel is not some like rich white snob, but also broken hates Abercrombie and they instantly become best friends. And she goes to Lizette's house. Lizette has a mom who kind of invites her over and I think suspects that something is going on and is like, well, why don't you come over? Why don't you spend the night? Their house is incredibly bleached to the nines. It's very sterile in there. They call her squeaky chlorine because the house is so clean. And Liz is her best friend forever. Liz picked the typeface of this book. Thank goodness. I like this typeface. 
So she kind of starts living with Liz, it seems. Like, this is now where she gets to go. Because the problem is, after she slept with Derek, she wasn't sleeping in Butchie's room anymore. So she starts sleeping in Derek's room. But of course, they break up. And she's still just sleeping in Derek's room. So as soon as she has another bed to sleep in, now she's sleeping in Liz's. Yeah, she breaks up with Derek. And he's just, like, on AIM talking to other girls while she's trying to sleep in his bed because she has no place else to go. I might have thought that Michael would be the one to rescue me from Derek's bedroom. But Liz turned out to be the real hero. The minute I showed up to the skate park with another girl, my brothers forgot all about the sides they were supposed to be taking. And we went from hanging out in the bleachers to riding in Josh's car to a Perry party. So Josh and Liz end up kind of getting a little flirty. And Michael leaves the house long enough to get a little flirty with Rachel again. So she, Josh, Liz, and Michael go on a double date. And from this point forward, her and Michael are pretty hand in hand. So she actually gets to go to Michael's house for the first time. And this is when we find out for sure that Michael is very rich. She has a big house on the ocean with fancy trees. But when she walks in, there's like cat food and poop everywhere. Part of the roof has caved in. There's raccoons living in the house. And she says he has this mom who just stays in her bed all day, comes out to the kitchen. It's kind of like grouchy and will be like, everyone's being too loud and then go back to her room and doesn't seem to care at all that the house is in disarray. So they just like lock themselves in Michael's room, which is also a mess. At least I think it's not rat infested. Like the rest of the house has animals running around. And there they stay until the end of high school, basically. At one point, she mentions Michael never leaves his house. And apparently he dropped out of high school. The mom is just asleep all the time downstairs. Like, what the fuck was going on in that house? I don't know. I mean, it was a lot like her own home, except for bigger. And so she keeps going to school only to get out of school. She knows she has to graduate high school, and she ends up graduating at 16. Yeah, and so she, like, wants to push. She goes, which would leave Michael and I in the same position. Two high school dropouts sleeping in a twin bed in his mom's crumbling castle. Some people might have been okay with that, considering the castle and all. But there was a surge that coursed through my body whenever I thought about that kind of future. If that's all I wanted for myself, why even leave the trailer at all? So one day she goes back to her home and her mom is asleep to the point where she's scared that she might be dead. She is still alive, but she finds pills and a diagnosis for schizoaffective disorder. So she wakes her mom up to make sure she's been taking her medicine properly. And there really is no discussion of this diagnosis. At least there is a diagnosis. But this was before the internet was what the internet is today. And I think she still was like, who am I supposed to ask about this? I can't ask my mom what it means, but at least something is going on. And I'm sure it was a bit helpful to know that there was an answer. Her mom continues to go in and out of rehab. Her and Liz start selling weed around school. They just kind of figure out a way to make a little bit of side money. And then she graduates. She never goes to a ceremony. She never walks. I wanted mom to acknowledge that I'd done it and by myself, but nobody ever told me anything, especially not when I wanted to hear it. So she's graduated. She's just hanging out and she's in Richie's house one day. They're playing beer pong and just shooting the shit. And finally someone's like, well, what are you going to do now? And she just for no reason goes, I think I'll go to New York. Yeah. And now she's like, well, I said it. Guess I got to do it. So she goes over to Michael and is like, hey, I guess I'm moving to New York. And she has this weird moment of she's very clearly saying I'm leaving, hoping that somebody will say, no, stay. You matter to me. And nobody will say it. She goes home to her mom and is like, I'm going to move to New York. And her mom's like, all right, see you later. Michael's like, "Okay, good luck. There was no magic cure for his agoraphobia, just as there was one for the lifetime of abuse mom put her body through. So she just kind of gets ready to go. She sets a date and she has some friends that she met online because she's very on the internet. Her MySpace name and her like AIM chat name is Stardust871, which fun fact for those keeping score, Bug's shelter name was Stardust. Oh my gosh. She does remind me of Steak Tooth. I know. Anyway, so she just gets ready to go. You know, she's like wondering if Michael's even going to come say goodbye or if he's not going to be able to leave his house today. He does come to say goodbye, but there's no nostalgic moment. He just gives her a teddy bear and leaves. 
and she gets to New York. It is Rochester, New York. I want when she's <laughs> in New York, and she was like, "It took me a while to get to Rochester." I'm like, "Rochester is Rochester between Florida and Manhattan?" I was How like, "Could Did that you be possible?" Mean to go to Rochester, I was like, "On the way to New York, you stopped at six hours north." <laughs> and she keeps saying, "I lived in New York, my time in New York," and I'm like, "I don't think you've, you've ever been to, to New York." That's not what anybody would assume you meant. <laughs> I don't think you've been to New York. To this day, she might not even know where New York is. No offense to people who live in Rochester. Listen, my first New York was Syracuse, but I figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, where are the tall buildings? Where's Broadway, sir? (laughs) Calling all aspiring detectives. It's time to find out if you really have the eye of a detective by assuming the role of June Parker in the game June's Journey. June is solving the death of her sister, and you have got to hunt for clues in hundreds of gorgeously illustrated scenes to solve this thrilling mystery set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. In a game full of action, adventure, immersive scenes, danger, and a sprig of romance, you will not believe that you haven't even left your couch. I started playing June's Journey when I would catch up on reality TV or just, you know, watching shows that you don't really need to watch. But let me tell you, June's Journey is so immersive. I don't even need to have a background thing on in order to engage in one thing. That's how fun it is to play June's Journey. With June's Journey, you can travel the world inside of the game to follow your next lead. With more than a thousand scenes full of hidden clues, there's always something new to discover. And chapters are added every single week, so there are always new characters to meet and places to search. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. So she gets to what amounts to be... A giant house lived in by like six men who are disgusting. They all work at the Cheesecake Factory. Nobody's nice to her because the boys are idiot assholes. The girls are like, why is there a girl living here now? She lives in the attic and they're like, hey, there's no heat up there. So I'd get a space heater if I were you, but also don't plug anything in. And she's like, oh, okay. So very quickly, it's obvious that this guy, Kyle, who she knew from online, thought he was like importing a girlfriend from Florida. When she started dating a different guy in the house, he turned on her viciously he started posting photos of her online catfishing people like with her photos but also being like hey these are photos of me and here's where i'll be and when so she is getting stalked viciously he puts her on craigslist as like looking for a boyfriend here's my phone number and where i work and my home address so she doesn't know what to do and she's so fucking scared that she has to leave she had this boyfriend there that basically sold drugs and so she would just drive around with him doing like drug deals that were dangerous and finally she's taken in by like scene girls And she just like lives with them and she just talks about learning their lifestyle and just kind of letting them put makeup on her and having to adapt to wherever she had a place to live. And she's like, it wasn't great and they weren't my people, but at least I was safe. So she's 18 at this point. And Sarah, the main girl, has a boyfriend who's in a metal band that nobody likes, but they're going (laughs) on tour. And for whatever reason, their merch person dropped out and they're like, who's going to sell our merch? And she just goes, I will. And they're like, well, you'll have to sleep in the van sitting up. And she's like, that's fine. They're like, we can't pay you. And she's like, that's fine too. (laughs) And then they're like, we would be up early tomorrow. We're leaving. And she's like, I'll be there. And she goes. And so she ends up touring with them for a week. And she's like, just drop me off when we get to Florida. Yeah. So she gets to Florida. She meets up with her dad. Who like meets her on the side of the highway because they had been sleeping at fans' houses on the floor. And that night they had nowhere to go. So they all slept in the van. So her dad just like pulls over on the highway and knocks on the van and sees his daughter sleeping in a van with four half-naked metal band guys and is like, this is what you do? Okay. Doesn't even care. And then the band calls her again. They've gotten to New Orleans and she's spent like a couple of days just bumming around her dad's house. 
And they're like, hey, we actually really need you back on merch. And she's like, okay. And she spends, I guess, the next couple of years from like 18 to 20 just going on tour, bopping from band to band, selling merch. She's like, very quickly, they realized having a hot girl man the merch stand at these concerts where it's like 10 to 1 guys is a quick way to make money. And so she starts working for record labels and they just have her sell merch on tour. Yeah. I guess she's a 19-year-old who will sleep anywhere and get paid nothing. And they're like, great. We have just the job for you, a job where we were hoping to pay somebody nothing. So she has these two years where she's just living out of vans with random bands, I guess. It sounds like hell. It really is like, just keep moving. Don't think bigger. If I can eat today, it's a good day. And she has nowhere home to go. So she doesn't know anything else. And the closest thing she has to stability is for three weeks, she's stuck in Columbus, Ohio, because there's a huge storm and all the tours got canceled. And she lives with this slut named Ashley. No relation to our (laughs) Ashley. I don't know her. She's not at the meetups. (laughs) She's like a lawyer's rich daughter who for some reason has forsaken all of her education to fuck every band member in town who takes her in but nobody likes so they all think she's a skank and then one day somebody's being really mean to Ashley and Rachel just beats the shit out of them. Like bad beats the shit out of them and that gets them some notoriety for a couple weeks and she makes friends with more sluts and she's like maybe I should be a slut. Yeah she had never had a one night stand at this point like she always has a boyfriend or nothing. She's just popping from boyfriend to boyfriend. She doesn't I mean, honestly, she kind of does that for the rest of her life. Yeah, to this day. But all these sluts are like, no, you're restricting yourself with these rules that are not helping you in any way. And she's like, oh, my God, they're not helping me in any way. So she like goes out to have a one night stand and it turns out to be a guy who has a girlfriend. So finally, one day, one of the leads singers of the band hits on her from the stage and she just can't fucking take it anymore. They hate you when they fuck you and they hate you when they don't. You're either a slut or a teaser, a bitch. And I'm tired, so tired of being something, so tired of fighting to be nothing. So she goes outside and for some reason the tour bus is on fire. She watches the bus burn. The manager is there like on his Blackberry and she's like, I want to get out of here. He's like, I want to get out of here. Somehow she calls the record label and is like, I need bus money to go back to Florida. So she just gets back to Florida and crawls in bed with her mom. And she gets there and she's living with her mom and she doesn't know what to do next. And she's completely aimless. And who should call her on the phone? A boyfriend. (laughs) Literally, I've never heard of a girl just being like, oh, what's my next step? If only I had a boyfriend. And then somebody brings you up and it's somebody being like, I'd love for you to be my girlfriend. So this guy calls her, she calls him Logan. I don't think that's his real name because later in the book, she says a different name. And I think it was like a typo that missed the find and replace. We've called books printed out Word docs before. This is a printed out Word doc. This is a printed out notes app. (laughs) I like it. Besides some of the sloggier writing, it is a wild fucking story. She gets a call randomly on her phone and it's a guy she met like twice at various shows. And he's like, would you come to San Diego and be my girlfriend? And she was like, yes, but only because I was already going to be in San Diego. (laughs) So she goes out to San Diego so that they can like go on a first date, but with the plan that she's going to move up to L.A. So she goes out and they do just kind of start dating. Yeah, she gets to L.A. She moves in with her not really friend, Ariel, who's a raging cunt, it seems. But I don't think you're acknowledging like this was her foster sister, essentially. This was the daughter of the woman who took her in when her mom went to rehab and abandoned her. So this is a girl who, if Rachel is 20, she's 26, which isn't super established, but she has a full-time job. She's a grown-up in the city. She is a grown-up. There are 26-year-olds on TikTok now saying, as someone in my late 20s, here's what I wish I could have known in my early 20s. And she knows what Rachel's situation is, and she lets her move into her garage, which doesn't have plumbing. 
for $900 a month under the guise that you need to learn how to hustle. So she's charging her $900 a month to live in her garage. And when would this have been? Like 10 years ago? 15 years ago? Yeah, 15 years ago. 2007. Highway fucking robbery. I'm sorry, but 15 years ago, $900. Like you could live in LA in a bedroom now for $900. I paid $720 a month for a bedroom in a three-bedroom apartment that had an in-unit washer dryer. And what year was that? 2013. I cannot believe the way that they were robbing a literal orphan. Yeah. Fucked up, Ariel. Ariel, if you're listening, you're a bad person. And I excused it when you were a teen because teen are bad people. But this was really mean what you did to Rachel. It was really fucked up. So because of her connections working the merch at various shows, she gets a couple of job interviews at indie record labels and she gets two offers. Well, and I do want to give Ariel credit. Ariel gets her these gigs and is like, you have a really good resume. You could work anywhere. I made you a resume. Yeah. So she gets one offer in New York, one offer in LA because her new boyfriend is in San Diego. She takes the LA job. So she's got this job. She's living in LA. She doesn't feel like she belongs, but we're beginning to see the twinklings of an adult life. When she gets a call from her mom that says, listen, Rach, I wanted to tell you before you left, but I'm reading about these jobs they have in Bahrain. What part of Florida is that? I ask. It's not Florida. It's overseas. But someone I knew from a writer's camp just got hired there after a six-year gap in her resume and she's making good money. They pay for everything and give you an apartment too. Now I know that she was like looking for me to say, no, don't do it. I'll change everything. I'll come home. We can make things right together. I love you more than I can bear. But how was I supposed to know that? I just started a new position in LA and here was this job dangling in front of her. A woman constantly worried about money. It was what I would have done if it was me. Open door, dart through, done. So she's just like, yeah, of course, take the job. And her mom is like, oh, okay, guess I will then. So her mom moves to Bahrain. Her alcoholic, schizophrenic mother moves alone to the Middle East. Yeah. That's not safe. You shouldn't not have a support system. Yeah, but her only support system was Rachel. Yeah, but at least she spoke the language of Florida. At least when you go to the hospital in Florida, like yeah. you can talk to your doctor. For her mom to be like, the only job I could possibly get is in Bahrain. Like, did you apply for any others? So she gets this job in LA and pretty quickly she goes to Planned Parenthood for like a routine pap smear and they find something. I don't know if they were unclear with her as it seems in this book, but they're like, oh, you better get another test done. She goes to get another test done and they're like, yeah, we better get you into surgery. It feels like she's just literally being shuttled back and forth they say we're gonna send a shuttle to your house to take you to the hospital now and she just like finds out she has cancer like after she's had surgery yeah they pull out a giant tumor she had uterine cancer which is what her mom had too and she has to start going to chemo so she's working this brand new entry-level job going to chemo completely by herself paying 900 dollars of rent and her boyfriend lives in san diego and her mom is in bahrain she ends up moving in with her boyfriend. They get a place that's halfway between San Diego and L.A., which is Long Beach. And she, like, really ends up becoming a part of the Long Beach scene for a minute. But in the meantime, she's panicking and working overtime at her job because she has to take on all these extra hours because the cheap charity version of chemo that she's getting is going to cost $18,000. That's the small amount that they are able to figure it out for poor people. Yeah, so she's working extra hours. Finally, her boss, this guy Michael, is like, hey – you don't seem like you're doing good. Do you want to take some time off and I'll find you a job that is easier? And then you can come back to this job when you're feeling better. And she's like, yeah, that would actually be great. His girlfriend works for Juicy Couture and they're looking for fit models. And she goes in, she gets the job. And we've like read a couple fit model memoirs. They get paid pretty well. She's making $75 an hour. And she can't believe it. 
And they also just keep calling her normal. They're like, we love that you're normal size. So in my head, I was thinking she was normal size, but no. apparently in LA, normal is code for very, very skinny. I was like, I can't believe she has such a healthy, normal body, even though she's going through chemo and has no money to eat. And it turns out normal is like, she's so skinny. So she's there at her very first audition for fit modeling. And somebody comes up and goes, hey, is it true you have cancer? Which is like a very funny LA thing to happen at a Juicy Couture. Just be like, oh my God, is it true you have cancer? And then she's like, yeah, but I don't want to tell everyone. I got tired of talking about it. And the girl goes, you should blog about it. Then you don't have to keep telling people. I have a blog and it's like a personal newsletter. My family doesn't even call me anymore. It's just like, check the blog, babe. (laughs) So she does. She starts blogging and people start reading it. She has like 3,000 very steady followers. So she starts blogging at the same time she gets a reputation for being a good fit model. So she is fit modeling three to four days a week, paying all her bills that way. And she doesn't have to work that many hours. She just stands there. And at the same time, she goes to a nutritionist who's like, you should get on a raw diet for your cancer. And she's also being told every day, don't gain weight. You look so great. We love how normal you are. And this begins her eating disorder. A perfect recipe to a raging eating disorder. She becomes obsessed with calories and controlling what she eats. I'm a monster and I know it. A monster of control and it feels good. It feels so fucking good. I say out loud, I feel so fucking good. In a matter of weeks, I'm down to one head of broccoli and three heaping spoons of pureed pumpkin twice a day. Yeah, so she is just starving herself and growing her blog. And another thing that she's doing is graphic design randomly. Like she just has little doodles that she does when she's at chemo and she'll upload them to her blog and people like them. So she has little blog posts about what it's like going through chemo, what it's like to be a fit model. And then she's got these little designs that someone randomly reaches out and is like, hey, can we put these on skateboards? And she was like, yeah. So she's kind of becoming an online thing. One of these days, she gets an email from her blog of a girl being like, hey, girl, sorry, but it turns out I hooked up with your boyfriend. My bad. And she just sucks it up. Liz moves out to L.A., lives nearby, but they're hanging out all the time. They're reunited sisters. And a combination of things starts bringing out the fact that it turns out Logan, the man who randomly called her that she lives with, sucks, sucks. I mean, of course, this 26-year-old man with a real job who's like traveling to Beijing and all over the place for work plucking a 20-year-old out of Florida, obviously red flags left and right, but he also is cheating on her. He also is hyper-controlling and just an overall dickhead from hell. Finally, one day he goes out of town for work and she just packs up and leaves. Her and Lizette get drunk and they're like, what if I just moved out right now? And Liz was like, of course, that's the perfect solution. So she moves out. When they get into a fight, he comes back a few days later and he's like, come on, just come back. And she's like, you don't know anything about me. I have an eating disorder. Can't you see that? Haven't you noticed? And he goes, what? No, you don't. He looked so certain as he said it that it made me laugh. Oh, my God. I am so done with you. Don't ever talk to me again. And of course, their breakup overlaps with her meeting another guy who she calls X. She won't even say his name. She's like, he was bad. I know everyone has an ex that sucks. But she's like, this was like a dangerous, dangerous man. He was like a big time drug dealer. And he was scary and he was huge. And she's like, I loved how little I felt next to him. And he was really controlling and fought. And she's like, all the bartenders in town were like, do not date him. He's really scary. And she's like, that just made me love him more. Liz said X Rapunzel me and I didn't know what she meant in the moment. But once I was out of there, it followed me and I knew she was right. He put her in a little tower. That's what Rapunzeling is. Of all the things X loved, he loved to watch me eat. To him, I think it was a sign that I was letting loose, revealing myself. A person reserved, especially for him. He knew I, how I clung to my calories, my cabbage soup, my cups of warm water. Getting me into a sticky booth at some cheap diner was like foreplay. And so one day he comes home and he's like, here, for my supermodel. It was a bag. In the bag was a tangle of syringes, a few vials of clear liquid. What was he trying to put me on? Clenbuterol. So she then describes the famous photo of Nicole Richie and Lindsay Lohan, the clearly depths of their eating disorder. And he's like, 
this is apparently what everyone's on. It's essentially speed. He's like, you don't actually have to inject it. You just put it under your tongue. It's how all the stars are getting skinny. And that way you can eat whatever you want and stay skinny. Oh, my God. I will say reading about clenbuterol and then the constant discourse around Ozempic right now, I was like, we're just doomed to cycle, huh? So she starts taking it and her and Liz have both like kind of spiraled in their eating disorder and they become pretty much addicted to speed. Yes. And she's like, yeah, it got bad. It was making me really edgy as speed tends to do to anyone between Liz and I almost getting into a physical fight in the street because she lost my purse. I knew I was in too deep. Around this time, X also hears about Tumblr and he's like, oh, you should move your blog to Tumblr. And she's like, what do you mean? And he just kind of converts the RSS and like moves her blog to Tumblr and people start really loving her on Tumblr. She says every time she looks at her phone, she has more followers than before. People reaching out being like, I love that you're sharing your cancer journey. This is so helpful. I'm obsessed with you. She is an incredibly rare combination of this cool, edgy, sexy scene girl with the American apparel aesthetic that we were all obsessed with back then. And then on top of that, she has this incredible story about surviving cancer. On top of that, she's living this like cool drug fueled party girl lifestyle. She's taking photos. She's doing graphic design. I mean, she really is like a consummate cool girl. She's a very specific type of cool girl. X also buys her an iPhone to lure her into having lunch with his mom. It's always funny when like people who have kind of crazy lives pick out a situation that they were like, and you'll never believe what happened next. And I'm like, no, I can't believe that your mom left you at 11. But a man drinking you into dinner with his mom, that's what stands out to you is the crazy. She's like, who would this even happen to besides me? (laughs) Yes, people. He conned me into lunch with his mother. How does this happen to a person? How? How? This is not my how did we get here moment from your book. (laughs) Yeah, almost every other page. (laughs) This is just lunch with a mom and a free iPhone. Yeah, like a big drug dealer wanting to like show his mom that he has a nice pretty girlfriend is the least crazy of it all. Also, X was like, you're going to make a lot of money on Tumblr. And she was like, cool. And then she's like, no, I just had a really popular Tumblr and not a dime. But she breaks up with him. She says she never wants to see him again. And then at a bar, she meets a guy named Blake. You might know him as Blake Anderson, the ugliest one from Workaholics. (laughs) That might seem mean, but he's mean. He's mean. You don't know what we know yet. And also, there's like a cute one, a handsome one, and an ugly one, objectively. Yeah, the goofball. Yeah, but the other ones are funny too, and handsomer. (laughs) So she sees him out, he's wearing a shirt, and she's like, I have that shirt. She just like yells at him, she's at a bar. She sounds crazy. Like, I feel like she has an upsetting life, and I'm happy she survived it. But I also feel like what gets lost in the chaos of her life is the chaos of her. Which is like every time she goes out, she's like throwing glasses at the wall, like at at Johnny Ruckets. (laughs) And she'll like mention it. But I do feel like when you're reading someone's memoir, it's hard to like encapsulate what a tornado you can be because you're also coming at it with your own perspective. So you're explaining every time you threw a glass at the wall or you're being like, I threw a glass at the wall. Things were out of control. And you're like, oh, so you know things were out of control. You must have a real good head on your shoulders now. <laughs> but like if you were just sitting at that Fuddruckers, <laughs> you'd be like, that girl is acting crazy. That girl on speed is just punching that guy from Workaholics. <laughs> like we do see this in every memoir. Like when someone lives a pretty out of control, like live fast existence. Then it's your perspective. You understand where it's coming from. And it's always, not always warranted, but it's like explainable. It's understandable. Like if we were reading the perspective of the person she went to lunch with who was like, yeah, I had this coworker who was like always down to get hammered at lunch and just like start a riot. You'd be like, she seems crazy. Yeah, but like the truth is if you're sitting at the slot machine and you see a girl just running naked screaming for her boyfriend, you're like, oh, that's crazy. So she likes Blake. He likes her. They're both loud chaos 
demons and they go on a real date and she realizes this is her first ever real first date that she's ever been on. She, it seems, has no idea who he is. Yeah. Her friend was like, I think I recognize that guy. I believe that she didn't have cable or TV. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she was home watching TV a lot. This chapter is called The Other Side of the Velvet Rope. And this is where it gets very funny because she's very protective and defensive. And I understand I think she had a really crazy relationship with the paparazzi, one that you wouldn't necessarily believe. But like for a while, she was an it girl in a particular scene and there was a lot written about her and she was in the thick of it all. But what I do want to laugh about is she keeps being like, I know all you guys want is assorted details, but I'm not going to tell you anything. This isn't a tell-all. And I'm like, the least interesting thing about you is that you knew somebody kind of famous. I know. <laughs> also, she does tell-all. Yeah, I don't know what is left to hide because she gives a lot. So she goes out with him to this party. They show up and right away she notices the shift in energy and she's starting to realize like what a big deal he is to people. The way that people look at him, the people want to get close to him. She's normally at these fashion parties and kind of treated like shit. And for the first time, she's getting a little bit more credit. And they go on the date and they have a nice time. He thinks her name is Raquel. But other than that, it's all good. So Blake is like, I had to go for an early call time. And she's like, I'll leave too. And he was like, no, it's okay. You can stay and party with your friends. And she like walks him out because she's like, if we don't kiss tonight, we'll never kiss. So they kiss and she's so happy. She's on cloud nine. She goes upstairs. She tells all her friends. And then she gets a phone call from Bahrain. And it's a hospital in Bahrain telling her that her mother is in a medical coma. And she keeps trying to be like, what happened? What's going on? And all they'll tell her is like, it's in Allah's hands now. Yeah. So she like starts rushing home. And she had been drinking that night. And she does this thing that Logan, her San Diego ex, used to do with his car where he would go full speed ahead and then pop the emergency brakes. The car like flung up into the air. So she is like absolutely panicking, rushing to get home. And she decides to just like fly through the air a little bit. And cops pull up behind her and try to give her a DUI. And they do. And so she blows under, but they bring her back to the station and she blows a DUI. It takes them four days to get her out. The case ends up being thrown out. She's not officially charged with the DUI, but she spends four days in jail because they can't get the money together to get her out. And then eventually Liz has to call X. So after four days, X puts up the money to bail them out. They spend all their money paying X back and then getting two tickets to Bahrain. And it turns out Bahrain right now is in the middle of like a revolution. So for her to go visit her mother, she needs like full security from the embassy. So the embassy is like, do not leave your hotel. When you want to go to the hospital, we will take you. She's never even left the country before. Also, while she's in jail and she can only make one phone call to Liz a day, she's certain her mother is dead. So she finally gets there. She's, of course, not telling Blake any of this because they've only been on one day and that's pretty heavy. And she goes out to Bahrain and she's with her mother and they're visiting every day. And while she's out there, they have her sign a DNR, do not resuscitate. And so they're making these plans to get her mom sent back to Miami. But every single time that they have a plan to get her mom to Miami, her condition worsens. And they're like, we can't put her on a plane like this. So finally, my mom died on December 3rd, 2011, just two months after I'd been in Bahrain. You know, she has these moments where she's like, I could have just quit my job and spent two months in Bahrain. I just didn't know. And no one ever told me. And I... I don't know. It's one of those things where like I've known people who have this whole like no one ever told me attitude. And like for a lot of them, I'm like, who should have told you? But for her, I'm like, someone should have raised you. It makes me so sad. So she's like, well, my mom used to always tell me what it is that she wanted to happen to her ashes because she was always having health problems her whole life. So she's like, I was very acutely aware of what my mom wanted should she die. And it was to have a third of her ashes under an oak tree in Florida, a third of her ashes in the ocean, and then a third of her ashes were to go to her daughter to be in a statue. And I guess because her grandparents actually paid for the cremation and for her remains to be sent back to the U.S., they took them. 
That's why it hurt, mom. It hurts to say, even in my head, even on a page 10 years later, that they took the ashes, that I wasn't invited to the funeral, that the funeral wasn't what you wanted, that grandma called and all she could say to me was, we're having a little ceremony tomorrow, but you don't have to bother coming. It's nothing really. It turned out to be a full ceremony. They had like a full on funeral and did not invite Rachel. Nobody ever told me to call just to talk to her, even though she wasn't lucid, that what she might have said wouldn't matter as much as hearing her say it. Nobody told me that I'd know nothing except pain and regret for not making that a priority for not quitting my job to live at her bedside and just be, to make up for everything that happened, to just spend time. I didn't know that I could. I didn't know. I had no one to tell me what to do seeing my mom like that. Nobody ever told me my mom wasn't going to come home. For all that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry and I love you. So she just goes full tilt into dating Blake and he is treating her like a personal assistant. He lives with Adam and they just like kind of every time they have someone that they need to let into the house, they just call her and they'll be like, hey, can you be at the house at one? She doesn't have a car at this point because it was impounded when she got her DUI and she just never got it out because she used all her money to pay back X. So she's like taking the bus all the way to their house. It's an hour-long bus ride to like let a TV installer in. She's like, he'll just call me from set and just be like, hey, can you let in the cleaning lady? She's coming in an hour. Just no question, where are you? Just the assumption that, well, we're dating now. You live there. But she didn't even have keys to the house. And she's like, I would have to climb the fence, go in through a window, and then come down to let some guy in. Honestly, insane. She talks a little shit about actors, which is kind of funny. She's like, did you know all actors are theater nerds? The most desirable hires are clay ready and eager for the mold, excited to ditch their dorky theater days for whatever prototype. Funny guy, sweetheart, heartthrob, the spotlight decides. And I've been saying this for years. Loving theater is dorky, and I appreciate that. I think that lots of things are dorky, so it's okay. Embrace it. But the way we've decided that actors are like strong, important heroes, they're theater kids. That's it. Channing Tatum is a theater kid. Ryan Reynolds is a theater kid. Like all of the people who are these cool guys, they're not action heroes. They're drama kids. It's fine. It's just dorky. And let's treat everyone like the dorks they are. This is 19 days later. And I guess immediately she just jumps into dating him. And she's like, it was fun. He would take me around and be like, look how cute her faces are. And our house parties were huge. Workaholics, cast and crew. She just dove headfirst into living this life where she was essentially the first lady of the workaholics home where all they did was party and drink and throw things at the wall and pay somebody to come clean it up the next day. I will say she talks about a lot of memories and like a lot of times. And then she's like, it had been 19 days. And I'm just like, what? Dude, later she's like, I couldn't believe the foundation we built wasn't strong enough. I was like, foundation? You mean that spring break long trip? Like, what are you talking about? It was the- like 19 days. How did you form like a lifetime of memories in 19? 19- You're like, oh, the times we would have. There was this party and that party. And I was like, two parties though, it seems. It seems like two. We were very different from each other. It was a truth we knew but decided not to say. When someone stole the gifted Gucci wallet out of your room during your party, I bawled my fist in anger, stomach turning. They came into your room, our home, here, after drinking our beer, standing in your kitchen, talking to us. They must have needed it more than I did. You said, innocent, I didn't fight you on it. I tried to bend my perspective to find the positive like you did. And when I couldn't, I just stayed quiet. And this is her being like, we ignored all the signs. I'm like, this literally was the first three weeks. <laughs> if there was already signs three weeks in, I cannot believe you guys pushed on. Anyway, so she like goes to bed at some party. And he, being the fucking attention-seeking douchebag that he is, jumps up on top of the house and like jumps onto a beer pong table and breaks his back. Yeah, he just like gets up and goes to bed. And then the next morning he can't move. And it turns out he almost paralyzed himself. My mom had been dead for 12 days and here I was in a hospital. I try not to think of her in the same sort of room, dying alone, dying abandoned, but you made it hard. I hate you, you said. It was a voice that wasn't yours. You looked at your dad. Get her out of here. Get her out of here now. And your dad, the salesman, he walked me out of the room and pitched me on something no one should ever buy. That's just the medicine talking. He doesn't mean it. It was the side of you I hoped I'd never see again. 
I popped one chocolate chip cookie from the nurse's station to my mouth, then another, then sat down on the linoleum and waited for you to be asleep. Then she flashes back to this memory of when she was young. It was before she was abandoned by her mom. She and some cousins were at her grandparents' house. And she like overheard her grandpa just saying, I hate Rachel. She's sneaky. He always hated her. What the fuck? Why would you say that about a kid? He hated that I was sneaky, said that I closed doors behind me because I was up to no good and couldn't be trusted. And there I was with my cousin, frozen in embarrassment because she was hearing this too, and maybe because it was true. And before I knew it, I was crying, walking towards them to the couch where they were talking. My grandfather refused to look up at me, and all my grandma said was, Bill, that's enough. And then she talks about kind of thinking the reason that her whole family turned on her was because her grandpa had set this precedent. He started the I Hate Rachel Club, and then they were like, well, we can't not do what he says, so we're not going to support her either. And it's like, this is a kid, a kid that you literally left for dead. So I hope you're proud of yourself. And to this day, I still can't understand how anyone can hate a child. Because even when my daughter reminds me of something that hurts, even just by smiling her dad's smile or painting the rowdy behavior I've grown to despise as the heroism kids do when talking about their parents, she is still a child that can wait to learn what hate means, who needs us to be her superheroes without any flaws. And then she says this about Blake. The day after Christmas, you were tapering down on your morphine and asked if anyone from the party had come to check on you, who had called. And not wanting to disappoint you, not wanting you to see the world for what it really was, a crowd of people willing to break into someone's room for a stupid Gucci wallet, but gone when he was down, I told you a lie. Yes, they came, so many of them, you were just asleep. And that really does set up the dynamic of the relationship, which is that he loves the fakes, he loves the people, and she just wants to be alone with him. So then things blow up. Their first couple photos is Coachella 2012, and their photos go everywhere. She becomes very much part of the what did she wear list. She's very much part of the Coachella scene. I mean, her Tumblr blows up even more because people are like, who is this girl who like looks so cool with Blake Anderson from Workaholics? And that's what I mean is it was very like co-parasitic. Did you just invent that? It's not like a parasitic relationship with him, but it was like a... No, no. There's like, isn't a symbiotic. Okay. I kind of feel like co-parasitic makes sense too because like all these people had that... Uh, like symbiotic sounds nice and co-parasitic is like leachy from both ends. But I guess what I mean by that is when people say they have a... Oh, I was saying parasocial. When people have like a parasocial relationship with someone and they did with Blake and then through Blake, they became obsessed with her and she yeah. was like the co-parasocial. Yeah, they had a co-parasitic, co-parasocial relationship <laughs> where like I do feel like his star rose because he had this cool who is she girl with him, but like her star rose because people were like, well, who is she though? I need to know. So the tabloids are obsessed with them. They have their highs and they have their lows. He never stops. The most important thing to him is his career and fame. And he really wants a girlfriend who's along for the ride. And she just wants to be alone with her boyfriend. They go to these parties. She talks a lot of shit about how pretentious writers are, which it did remind me a lot of comedy parties where like there's just a group of boys who think that their jobs are as important as saving the world and then they like cast their girlfriends to a different corner where they also have to sound cool and one-up each other. And then also the women who are like part of the boys' circle end up in the women's circle because men can't accept women as part of their world and it is just like a big one-uppy bullshitty experience. Getting here had been so exhausting. Still, I keep running. Do what Blake needs me to. Smile how he wants. When we smuggle in his friends from behind the fence and bring them onto the carpet with us, it feels more real, more like me. They put us directly in front of the stage just to be sure the cameras would catch our faces when they pan to the crowd. Whatever that power means is lost on me. I'm wondering if anyone knows I'm wearing highlighter on my lips. She also implies that he cheated on her. When men get famous, the world opens up to them. The expectations shift and so does the blame. They cheat, it ends up in the tabloids, and people will chat over lunch dates, swapping gossip, sighing, what did she expect? 
Shame on the woman for thinking he loved her. Shame on her for thinking she stood a chance against fame. How dare she not realize for a moment that this world is his, that she should be grateful for any scraps she has thrown. And if she attempts a career of her own, God forbid her success will never be hers. She will have nothing without him. Shame on her really for assuming she had any worth, any identity, any potential. So she's living this life that's like the highs and the lows and they're at a baseball game and suddenly she loses her vision and everybody's like, you just need to eat. And she's like, that's not what the problem is. And like the problem is she needs to eat. But the other problem is her cancer is back. She goes to the doctor. Sure enough, the cancer is back and it's worse this time and it's going to be harder to get through. And she's concerned about how do I pay for this? I'm so stressed. And he calls her from the freeway and goes, well, let's just get married. Then you can have the insurance. And she's like, I don't want to get married just for the insurance. He's like, well, that's not all this is about. She's like, I don't know. That's how it feels. We got married in Los Angeles County Courthouse on September 7th, 2012. Him smiling in a pair of jeans and an 80s printed button up. Me trying to forget the fact that we just got in a fight five minutes earlier over the simple white sundress I was wearing, now covered in the blue black circle skirt I'd worn for three days in jail. Tabloids and bloggers will call him a hero, a man who truly embodied the spirit in sickness and in health, tout him for all the things he promised it wasn't just about. And I tried to cling to that promise, to my romance, to the reason I said yes. I guess people were really mean to her in the press. She talks about people accusing her of faking cancer. Just a lot of bullshit. All these people are making fun of her getting lip injections, which she had gotten lip injections. But the photo they actually had of her was her being swollen from chemo. And then she talks about her relationship to the fame. And she says, let me be clear. Fans are fanatics. They are, by definition, single-minded, hungry, rabid, desperate. They don't care that you're a human being with wants and needs. They clamor around you like an angry mob, tearing at your being, fighting for the chance to touch you, look at you, scream in your face. They don't ask questions. They don't care how you're doing. They latch onto you, sometimes screaming a name that isn't even yours. And then she tells the story about going to South by Southwest. Yeah, so they're at South by and people are recognizing them, always wanting to take photos, always wanting something. At one point, a guy comes up and squirts her in the face with a water gun and is like, I just want a photo. And she flips out at them. First, she's like, no, and he keeps doing it. And Blake is like, remember what we said, because Blake is all about say yes to every fan, take a photo with every fan. And she's like, well, this guy's squirting me. And so she punches him and Blake freaks out and goes, it doesn't matter. You can't do that to them. My voice started to break because I realized it wasn't us against them. Not at all. But he wouldn't listen. I told him you felt them closing in on us. So you took my hand, squeezing it tight. You said, leave that shit behind in Long Beach. But you forgot to ask if I was OK. Let me tell you, if I was going through cancer treatments, if I was in chemo and a man started squirting me in the face with a water gun and Mac didn't kill them. I will say if anyone squirted you in the face with a water gun, I would beat their asses. I would beat their ass for you too. What is the point of having a husband if not someone to beat somebody up who's like physically harassing you at the lowest moment of your life? Also to get squirted in the face is so like unsettling and awful. Like And to just say I want a photo squirt. Like you're not allowed to say I want a photo and also be like assaulting somebody. Yeah. It's really fucked up and Blake took their side. I mean to take his side in that moment is just batshit fucking insane. And it really just goes to show that Blake cared more about the fans than anybody. Then they end up coming up with a t-shirt company together. It came up because he was looking for a special goofy shirt to wear on, on their show and they could only order in bulk. And they're like, why don't we sell the extras? And sure enough, a t-shirt company was born. Then they start thinking about the possibilities of having a baby because she's going through this treatment. They kind of need to figure it out right now. And she has one viable egg and she becomes pregnant. So she's like blown away. Meanwhile, she's like, okay, I'm finally going to give you what you want. I know a lot of you came to this book looking for stories like this. So here it is. I'm going to give you exactly how I took it in. And then she tells about going to a party and seeing Charlize Theron. And I'm like, this is truly the worst part of the book. If you're here on page 236 looking for a story about how one time she met Charlize Theron and Charlize Theron said hello back, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Larry David gets her a seltzer star studded. So she's getting more and more pregnant and she's hoping that this will bring them together. And of course, the opposite is happening. 
managers are like, I don't think this is good for your look. Like, I don't think it's a good vibe for his career. Just keep hiding it. He keeps just going to parties without her and she stays home alone. She also like doesn't want to party anymore. She can't drink. And so she's like, oh, we'll settle down and kind of become adults. And he just wants to keep partying. I wish we had been mature enough to sit down and try to see it from each other's perspectives. Instead, I felt myself detaching. So they have the baby and they're so in love and she's so happy. It was the first baby she ever held. The first baby I touched, I think. After a grueling 20 minutes of being on this side of me, Mars drifts off to sleep. They named their baby Mars. Blake's phone rings and I shoot him dagger eyes, piercing him, mauling him. In that moment, I realize that I won't be able to try and fight the maternal instincts. It's not even a decision I can make. The love I have for Mars is the love my mother had for me, unavoidable. And then 30 days later... 30 days later, she has to get radiation treatment, the second part of her cancer treatment. So she is not allowed to touch her baby. She can't be near anyone because the radioactivity, like if they're someone that's going to hold the baby, she can't get it on them and then they get it on the baby. So she's on the second floor of this house. Blake is at work shooting a TV show like 18 hours a day. And she's just like calling down to the nanny from the top floor, unable to touch her own baby. That's brutal. So six years after they first met, she breaks up with him. Files for divorce. She says, six months into our relationship, I told you I'd love you if you were a pizza boy and I meant it. Six years later, I'd scream, I wished you were just a pizza boy and I wanted you back and you'd scream in my face until I didn't even recognize you. Lips curling around the world. I am so much more and both of our hearts would break. Ew. Somebody from his team tried to get her to sign an NDA so she didn't write a book. (laughs) Can't stop her. Also, what the fuck is an NDA? You know I don't believe in those. I don't think that that's like the world that people operate in, Ash. I believe that if any two people on this earth think NDAs are bullshit, it's me and steak. I don't think she signed the NDA. I know, but I'm saying even if she did, she would have written this book. Nothing illegal happened here. It's not illegal to be a dick. Yes, it is. It's illegal to be mean to memoirists I kind of like. <laughs> so then after her divorce, she's just kind of bopping around. She goes back to Florida, lives in hotels. He comes and says some really nasty stuff to her like, well, I get why nothing ever matters to you. You should have stayed in the swamp. Like you don't care about anything. Basically calling her trash. Yeah. He says everything you do is to try and impress your 13-year-old self. And it's like, Oh, yeah, workaholics guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that fart and getting stoned joke. That's for the you of the future. <laughs> Those funny t-shirts you made with a side duck on them. That was for current you. Okay. So she's living in hotels around the city. She moves back to LA. She realizes she can't leave LA because it would just be too difficult. She has a ton of money. I think she just starts like lashing out financially because she's like, okay, if this is what you think I should have loved, I'll fucking love it. She talks about getting $5,000 extensions, just getting fur coats and living insane lavish lives, living in hotels. She also has this weird realization that because she was a cool Tumblr girl who was on the arm of a cool comedy boy, she's like, I hadn't spent money in years. I was just getting free clothes, getting free makeup, getting free shit. I was like living in the house that he bought. She like hadn't spent money and they were like, okay, well, if you're going to keep your business afloat, you need to have credit, spend money on these credit cards. And she was like, oh, okay. She does this thing in order to try to like make him miss her and realize what she had done for him in his life. She does a one week on one week off with the baby, hoping that having the baby for a week at a time would show him how hard it is to have a baby. And during those weeks, she is just partying. She is out all night until brunch, never wants to be alone drugs drinking the nines and then on the weeks she has the baby she's pretty depressed and just laying in bed all day eating room service and watching tv oh my god and then she gets this gig as a co-host on mtv's reboot of trl with melissa and mike who are those people ashley oh my god okay so first of all this show what was it called 
It was called like MTV World or something like that. It was not a reboot of TRL outright. It was like another show that they were like, this is going to be MTV's new TRL. And I was friends with Mike, who's one of the people that hosted it and is now Lizzo's boyfriend. And who was Melissa? Lizzo. So she's hosting it with Melissa, Lizzo, and Mike. And this show, I remember being like, I can't believe Mike is about to become the most famous comedian I've ever met in my life. Like, I had such a big crush on him. And then he, like, moved to L.A. to make this TV show. And I was like, I missed my fucking chance. (laughs) And now my chance is missed because he and Melissa... Melissa. Melissa are happily in love. It's so crazy watching him like be this art guy on the internet because I'm like, I'm pretty sure last summer you were still doing comedy shows in the grotto. I think you're still doing comedy shows in the grotto. Anyway, Mike's hot. So that show gets canceled. As we all know, she doesn't know what she's doing. And can I say, do you know what the craziest thing is? I mean, I had no idea who Melissa was at this point. I think Lizzo had like one song out that was like kind of good. And I was like, oh, that'll be really cool. But I was like, I can't believe Mike is on a show with Steak Tooth. (laughs) I was like, that's so crazy. How the times have turned. Mm -hmm. So then she gets, you know, she rents some house. She's like, I don't know. I got a really good deal on a 6,000 square foot Laurel Canyon home. So I don't like there's money somewhere. And then she like rents this 8,000 square foot studio in downtown for her business and she starts another clothing line called hot lava hot lava was born in the fire yeah babe <laughs> and then maybe she's like i run a company that has 14 brands i'm like how are we defining brand i don't know man they still do their t-shirt line together as business partners and then you know she's 30 now she has a baby she opens up snapchat and at this point anyone could respond to anyone And some construction worker in Buffalo is messaging her and they just start messaging nonstop. And then she flies out to Buffalo and they fall in love. And then this book ends with how amazing they are. Literally, it ends with how much she loves him. She's always with me when I wake in the night, slamming my arm into Zach's chest, feeling for his body, kneading his legs with my toes and overwhelming urge to assure myself. And it's all about how much she loves him. This book came out September 2022. She's now in, she's now married to somebody no, else. No, she's engaged. No, they got married. When? Like last week. Just look up the photo. She looks really cool. I thought it was an engagement party. It's nobody knows. Whatever. She is at the very least engaged to someone else at this current moment, which is fine. But her final chapter is about realizing how much she like defines each chapter of her life through the man she was with. So it is very interesting to me that she still did that yeah the last chapter is called forgiveness and i actually really loved this she goes as i was writing this book i became deeply upset that as a woman my narrative has been led greatly by the men i have spent time with upset that every chapter was hitched to a relationship but if you don't have a strong family or support system you have to anchor yourself to something so that you don't float away i forgive myself for anything i've done as a means of connecting or learning or loving and i think that that's like a really like it's true she has no family she has to get a boyfriend she has to get a boyfriend this has been my truest self my subconscious all the time i spent trying on and testing little pieces of me in the real world was a waste the real me my full self was here in the pages writing all along I mean, first of all, I really liked this book. I found it interesting. I found it pretty readable. And I think her story is fascinating. I will say she talks a lot about like trying on personalities to fit in different places because she just wanted to belong. I don't know that she ever centered on anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think she came to the realization that she was trying on personalities. And she has this moment of being like, and then I walked out of that series of shells of who I've been and I became who I am. And then the book kind of ends. You're like, but who then are you? She was Zach's girlfriend. 
After all these books, I guess I'm starting to wonder who is anybody? Yeah. What is the year where things come to a halt and you're set and you're done? I think only Cicely Tyson can really write a book where at the end she goes, and that's who I am now. And that's who I'll always be. Cause then, then she, she died. <laughs> like the next week she made it 94 years discovering herself and then she died. And that's, yeah. you have a two week period where you can write a book. And I think to expect anyone to get to the other side of existing and like the sense of self is something that I think up until this minute I believed you could get to, but it's a forever journey. <laughs> it is totally a forever journey. And overall, I do recommend this one. I mean, if you were interested in her, I guess we told you everything. We told you I everything. I will be honest. I don't know that you had to buy it outside of this podcast, but. No, it's like an interesting read. I think you would like it. And I also think that we've never read a book before where I'm like, oh no, the proceeds go to her. <laughs> yeah, I guess we want to help her out. I definitely think the story was like a 9 out of 10 for me because you see all these girls just making it in LA and New York and you're like, who are you? How did you get here? And her childhood is horrific. But then I'd say the writing was like a 6 out of 10 for me. I liked it. I would say if you're looking for something interesting to pass the time on your next flight, grab her off a shelf. I think you have to get it on the internet. Like a true Tumblr girl, this story exists only on the internet. Blake, I'm kind of happy to see that it doesn't look like his career has amounted to much. He's no Adam Devine. Where's his pitch perfect? Where's his house party, huh? I think Durs is back in like Nebraska or something like living off of his $10 million like a king. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. <laughs> Thank you, Ocean1185. I love you bigger than the ocean. Thank you, Rarns. To show you how much I care, I plan to knit you a sweater with yarns. Thank you, DJT is a moron. Listen, I appreciate you. So if you say so, I say so. Thank you, Trailer. You are my Taylor Swift. Thank you, K Hard 14. I would go hard for 15 for you. Thank you, May Lou. I cannot even begin to tell you how much I appreciate you. And that is all for this week. I love you guys so much. See you on the road.